0: You are listening to the What A Word podcast, an interview-style podcast where guests bring their unique experiences and insight on culture, life's challenges, and faith. Each episode is seasoned with words which will inspire and encourage. Now here is your host, Ryan Sharp.
1: Welcome to the What a Word podcast. It's a wonderful Saturday evening where I am. And I, as always, I'm honored to be a conduit each week. Uh, our weekly podcast has guests to address life challenges, uh, culture, and faith. Um, what I've also been doing is amplifying uh, some unconventional professions. Uh, today is no different. Um, my guest today is Rihanna Seister. She's a St. Petersburg native. A lover of books, uh, student data and evaluation manager at Cap, a not-for-profit, and uh, she's also pursuing her master's degree in public policy, which she plans to complete in April. I'm honored to be joined by her. Her work is pretty impactful, and she joins me today on the Waterwork Podcast. Please join me in welcoming Rihanna Seister to the Waterwork Podcast. Thank you. Welcome. So uh, we spoke a little bit off record and I told you how um, honored I was to have you, first of all, but I realized what I've been doing in the last number of years I've done this podcast is uh, indirectly I've been exposing listeners and viewers to uh, some unconventional career choices. And I say unconventional because in our communities, we're not always exposed to all there is in terms of work that is impactful. And your work is pretty impactful, and I'm hoping we'll be able to capture a large percentage of what you do in your role. Um, I wanted to bring you though to what kind of spearheaded this, um, your journey, um, uh, whether it happened early or near towards the end, uh, you highlighted that uh, a mentor uh, told you to stop playing it safe and be confident Mm -hmm. in your capabilities. Could you unpack for us what you believe the mentor meant when the mentor said stop playing it safe?
0: Yes, so one of my closest mentors, uh, we were sitting down having coffee and I'm always like, I wanna do this and this and this. And although I'm doing a lot, um, doing those things tends to take a toll Because. Imposter syndrome is real and I'm learning not to continue to put that on myself, but it's a very real thing um, to kind of feel like I know I'm in this room. I know I'm sitting at the table, but my thought is always what if they just like me? What if they just think I'm cool? Like that many people actually think I'm cool, but (laughs) what if they just think I'm great? And my work really isn't that good. Or I really don't work that hard. What if people are just giving me chances because they think I need it? And my mentor broke it down to me that it's good when people like you. You want to be liked. But people are not just giving you chances because they like you. They care about whatever work they bring you in. They care about that thing enough to say, Rihanna's great, but she's not they care more about the organization than they do about liking me. So if I'm continuing to press into these spaces and be seated at these tables, it's because I work hard. Um, And confidence is just like an ever-growing thing for me. I'm just kind of working my way through that and taking bigger chances, so.
1: That's good, that's good. And I'm sure someone looking on or listening um, can take some comfort in what you just said, because um, you've amplified also that in doing that, you're challenging your fears and perhaps identifying the payoff uh, right. with the risk involved. Um, so I'm so proud of um, all you've accomplished and we're gonna get into it. But what are you grateful for in this season?
0: Yeah, it's funny that you asked me that. I was just um, like sweeping and cleaning up and I'm like, oh my gosh, look at me. Like I have a home to clean I have a husband that loves me. I have a car. I don't like second guess if I can get to and from. I'm not questioning, am I going to eat? I go to work. Like, just, just a general just moment of like, look at where I'm sitting. Um, and I know that we talked a little bit before um, we started, but um, just had like a super traumatic and abusive childhood and upbringing and I just think it's powerful like the way I'm a Christian the way the Lord works and kind of sweet and just kind of I don't know just gives you a moment to sit down and really be like wow like I could have ended up in so many other places I could have ended up in so many other circumstances and so just sweeping my floor and (laughs) being with my dogs I'm like wow so just grateful for everything overall
1: Powerful, powerful. And it's not lost on me that you were recently recognized as top 20 under 40. So you're still a pretty young person and things, as you indicated, could have ended up a lot differently. And you highlighted some of that. Talk to us about um, how things changed for you. What led to the change or the change in direction for you, as you see? Um, So I was adopted when I
0: was 10, but I want to say before that I got into education because my teachers were always the consistent good for me. My teachers, like I knew home might be a mess, but when I go to school, the teachers are going to be there. They're going to be nice to me. It's going to be clean. I can, re- I can be, I can rely on school. And so I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, being a teacher for two years, I recognize that the change I really want to see in education is policy led and it's not the day to day. Now, the day to day is important. I love seeing my kids. I love talking with them, spending time with them. But the disproportionality in what we see across K through 12 education is so systemic and it is so deeply rooted Um, And so that's what led me to get my master's in um, public
1: policy. And that's sobering, your experience, what your expectations were when you went to school every day. Uh, School sounded like it was a safe place. Mm -hmm. Your Mm -hmm. study, however, um, and we'll get into it, we could probably touch on it now. Your study focuses on discipline being a, a, a... an avenue or a conduit uh, from the school to the prison pipeline? Unpack that for listeners and viewers.
0: Yeah, so my favorite quote is actually by, well, one of my favorite quotes is by Bettina Love. And she quotes that, there is no school to prison pipeline because school is the prison. And that took me down a whole avenue of like, okay, like how are schools prisons? And so what I'm studying for my master's is how teacher biases, police presence on campus, teacher race, lack of training, how all of those things impact how Black students are perceived and then disciplined. Um, And so a current book I'm reading by Kristen Hemming, it states that Black children are disproportionately disciplined and criminalized because they're not seen as children and we have a tendency to adultify children especially girls we don't give them their girlhood and their boyhood and I'm talking specifically black children we see black girls being written up for referrals that are so subjective so I'm seeing referrals like she was disrespectful or she had a bad attitude and that is so easily perceived differently because let's say a white male teacher is talking to a young black girl and she's doing this like I'm doing now. It's just a natural kind of cultural thing that we do. Oh, she was aggressive, you know, she was defiant, and I can talk to that same student and we're just chilling. We we're having a, the time of our life, you know, having a good time, and so all of those pla- factors just play a huge role. Um, we even see kindergarten we see fifth uh five-year-olds being arrested on campus and it's just insane to me how all those things play a factor and then like we said earlier they come from me and then they they get to you and it's like oh you know it's it it feels a little too late although it's not I always want to extend grace and opportunity but it feels too late so I would like to implement some policies before we get before
1: we get out of school. Wow, wow, wow. Because, you know, as you were talking, I thought about it, you know, that even if a student has a bad day or a disagreement or has some disagreement with the person in authority, there doesn't seem to be a lot of grace being offered to children depending on the color of that child. Yep. And that's very sobering. Mm-hmm. Because your experience sounded a lot different. It sounded like you had teachers who worked with you had empathy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're pointing out now that the studies confirm that, especially in your right. state, this is no longer present.
0: Right, yeah. right. absolutely, for sure. Oh, wow.
1: Uh, so you um, are a lover of books and we'll get back to your career in a second. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get back to it. a lover of books. Um, was there a book that you wish you had gotten earlier in life that stays on your bookshelf, gets reread over and over again, get, gets referred to over and over again?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting because there's there's not really a book I wish I would have got earlier because it came when it was supposed to come. But, um, Angela Davis, uh, women, race and class. Um, I wish I had gotten that book earlier because it really just, is so empowering. Like black womanhood is just so unique and the history behind it is just, I mean, it's just crazy behind being a black woman and being where I am today, the history behind that, um, that book really helped me to just feel empowered and navigate spaces that I really normally wouldn't have. So like policy, government in general is a very, very male dominated, white male dominated space. And so that book was just like, you have the power, you have the skill, and now you have what it takes to back back that up. So Angela Davis, Women, Race and Class
1: is a great book. How important is it for children of color to see themselves in the pages and see their journeys in even the stories in the pages?
0: That's, nothing touches that. <laughs> nothing touches a little black girl, a little black boy being like, oh, they look like me, you know? And I'm not gonna say little, anybody, right? It impacts us, representation impacts us even well into our adulthood. Um is so important. And so I kind of have another point about that, but um, we'll we'll move forward. <laughs> yeah, but we'll get back to
1: it. We'll get back to it for sure, because as you mentioned, policy, it seems to me, and I think you would agree that policy is what drives education forward and even backward. Talk to us about what you see in your work, where policy is concerned.
0: Yeah, so um, equity and policy, it can be really far apart, or can be super, super close. So one of my first professors in the program told me that if you care about social change, if you care about justice, you care about policy. And I think we kind of see the opposite of that in some ways with like the current movement of education, Um, especially here in Florida. Um, We're seeing a lot of politicization, we're seeing a lot of polarization, of education. Uh, we have this whole movement about what can be read in the classroom and what can be administered by teachers in the classroom. Um, we are in a phase of student stories being completely just wiped out um, on the in the sake of we don't want to, you know shake the table too much. Um, we see like the safe space stickers, are not allowed in schools anymore. And so if we are not showing our students true history and factual information, even if you take the political aspect out of it, then you're you're stripping away the entire identity and opportunity to learn. Because even growing up in my home, right, I grew up in a very conservative Black household. And I would not have learned to embrace the difference, to embrace differences of other people just from home, right? Like you have to go to school. You have to talk to different people. You have to experience different cultures and different things for you to understand the importance of empathy and justice. It's like a lot of kids only get that from school. And so we're taking, we're just slowly kind of, you know, taking that away between the stay woke act and the don't say gay and, you know, what teachers can and can't say. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's hard. It's a rough battle, but policy should be close to equity. That is how you get there.
1: A light bulb went off, (laughs) Rihanna, when you made that point, because, you know, I'm thinking even my own life. And when I think about how did I get here? Mm History is what informs that, especially when you're forced to go back and look at decisions and things you had no control over. And I would like to think for someone looking at the world with all the different cultures, and they wanna determine how did certain groups get where they got, and how did others end up where they ended up? What impacted those groups beyond uh, decision-making and morality? Were there outside factors, Mm -hmm. like you said? It brings right. to bear a more honest conversation and perhaps some empathy because Absolutely. you're seeing now that some people who are in dire straits or who are challenged on every side, it wasn't because of a decision they made. Right, you know? right. And, right. And, and to your point, uh, critical race theory and um, true history would help to address um, meaningful change. And Mm -hmm. I think coupled with policy would help us to have some truth and restoration and reconciliation rather, yeah. Yeah, we got like textbooks
0: saying like we're not using slaves anymore. We're not even using enslaved people. We're using like workers. I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) You know, I want to say I'm shocked, but I'm, I'm not. It's Florida, so
1: yeah. So I mentioned to you that um, a mentor of yours challenged me. In fact, when we spoke, I said to her at the end, I believe I'm meeting my clients too late in life. I'm a public defender. And I said, I would love to be in a place where I could address the school to prison pipeline head on. And she said, that would be a powerful thing if you did it. Um, But you started off with one career you were in one career and you saw that policy would help you to uh, address those issues head on. Talk to us about your current role as a student data and evaluation manager, coupled with your master's and how the two came together to address the school to prison pipeline, et cetera.
0: So my love and interest in data and research came from school. Um, came from my public policy background and I went out into a role um, where so the organization I work for we provide arts education in k-12 through schools in new county my role in that is to um, implement collect analyze interpret the data that we bring in and see how our programming is improving student outcomes And so the key measures that we focus on are attendance, behavior, um, you're looking at like academic records, student confidence. How are we impacting our students through arts education? Duval County is majority Black students and that displays itself in our um, data for our organization of who we're serving. And so I'm not an arts person i never done any arts stuff but i care about numbers and i care about the story that numbers tell um and so just managing program evaluation tools and seeing how what we're implementing impacts students and that's something that you have to do a policy the last step of any policy in its implementation is evaluation is it working do we continue it do we stop it or what needs to be fixed or what needs to be addressed. So that evaluation piece is is critical.
1: What do you feel when you see that something works? I mean, with all the data showing the stark realities Mm -hmm. of the lives Mm -hmm. of your target group, um, black and brown children, what does it do for you as an analyst when you see this is in fact working? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it feels good okay it feels good and i'm like okay we can keep going we can keep driving but i'm also a very type a enneagram one personality and so i'm critical and i'm logical <laughs> and I'm like always like this is working but how can we make it better how can we make a bigger impact how can we get more students and I'm also very cautious of the fact that the world and our kids are moving fast like they are changing quick and so what what works now or what worked 10 years ago that might need to be redone and and polished and brushed up because I mean we're just moving fast so even if something is successful and it feels good and it works and we keep doing it I'm also very conscious of the fact that we can do better we can always do better and change change happens. It's inevitable and you got to keep up with it. We got to be able to keep up with it.
1: So I wanted to also follow up with um, th- th- what are the factors that point to uh, successes or failures in terms of the evaluation? And um, your bio seems to speak about how important it is to empower differences in Mm -hmm. students in terms of education could you amplify that for listeners and viewers why is it important to empower differences
0: Mm -hmm. so i kind of touched on it earlier um like the best education we get is often not learned from a book and it's often not learned from our parents or it's it's just not at home most of the time Um, Those experiences and interaction that we have in the classroom are so critical for creating a space and a world where differences are not just tolerated, but are genuinely embraced and empowered. Um, I think that the, the first touch of diversity and empathy is what we deal with in school. And I'm thinking of my nephew, who's, Three, and it's so tall now um, he can learn to share at home with mom and dad but learning to share at school with your friends um, you learn differences as soon as you hit the ground running in school just social interaction and I think the biggest part of embracing differences is just really understanding the humanness that comes with it like we intellectualize it and we read up on it and we study it, but sometimes it's, it's really just as simple as, a hum, as, a, as another interaction. And I also think about the impact on educators and how the shift that education is taking takes a toll on them. Um, we have Black educators, LGBTQ educators, um, educators with disabilities. And so if we continue to push out this level of diversity and embracing differences, then we're also really, really, really impacting our teachers, our educators as well, because it's hard enough. I taught for three years and it's hard. I surely don't want to show up somewhere where I can't be my full self and I can't, you know, tell my stories to my students. So It's so impactful all around, just and not just our students, but our teachers, our administrators um, and our communities as well to embrace differences for sure.
1: You are nothing short of a miracle because as you highlighted in the beginning, you were adopted and uh, your adoption, part of your experience that it seems based on everything that's happened to this point, uh, changed your life for the better. Uh, Could you say something to us about um, the role your adoptive parents played in your life?
0: Yeah, I I love to brag on my parents. Um, So they were not like foreign to me. Um, My mom, I'll tell a quick story. My mom was an alcoholic and she was nine months pregnant, drinking at a party, having a good time. And she had only known my godparents for a couple of hours. And she was, she was tipsy and she asked them to be my godparents. And they took that very seriously. Um, I was over their house most weekends. And then when she got to be really, really sick, um, when I was 10, um, they kind of transitioned me into their home. And so that was such a drastic transition. And I'm just now recognizing how drastic of a transition that was for me because I went from. Just, I mean, living in a car, living in a shelter, um, abuse, to being here full time, and my godparents are, like, amazing. I mean, I mean that so genuinely. They are well-rounded. They are focused. They kept me focused. Um, They're loving. And that transition from one place to another played such a critical role. And I'll tell you this the day after my mom passed away, I went to school. And I think that's really where school became my safe, my real, real, real like safety blanket, like that consistent good that I could count on. I went to school. And the next semester was the start of honor roll. I have not not had honor roll or dean's list since the fourth grade and i mean it's just impactful like the the difference that just an environment makes just that quick switch of oh i feel safe so i'm good i can focus on my homework i can do what i need to do um so yeah i hope my godparents listen to this because i love it very much
1: <laughs> oh that's powerful man what a a powerful story of um what human effort, uh, empathy, and um, being other centered could do for the lives of others, and you're carrying on that legacy and that tradition, no doubt, in your work. I wanted to speak to you about uh, CAP. It's not a conventional entity. Could you talk to listeners about and viewers about uh, the Cathedral Arts Project?
0: Yes, so where I currently work, Cathedral Arts Project was founded in 1993, And what we do is we use a part-time teacher and fellowship model. And we go, we implement arts education of all disciplines. So we have orchestra, we have art therapy for students with autism. We have um, dance and just everything you can think of when you think of arts. We implement those into the Duval County schools. Um, We are currently at... I want to say for the 22-23 school year, I want to say we're at about 30 different sites. We're at we're at a lot of sites, and we have a tons of courses that we offer um, for students K through 12. Um, So, I mean, it's really a unique kind of nonprofit because we are in the schools, but we're not a school, (laughs) you know. So we just, you know, we do community outreach um, performances. We have a yearly showcase visual art showcase. Um, So we really try to impact students through art and give them opportunity to be themselves fully.
1: What do you see as one of the objectives of CAP? Because I think what you've highlighted is um, this is addressing uh, different learning styles, maybe different learning opportunities. You're talking the Mm -hmm. arts where maybe a student wouldn't come alive in the conventional setting, but through CAP, Mm -hmm you're seeing that that student come alive now because they're being exposed um, to all of these different things. Um, yeah, so sure. saying, having said that, what is CAP revealing about maybe conventional education that has issues or maybe has mm-hmm. the shortcomings of conventional education?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the difference between CAP students and non-CAP students is very clear. Um, CAP students perform higher on state level assessments. They are more likely to improve attendance. They are less likely to have behavior issues. And what we see really, really, really across the board that parents, both parents and students indicate on surveys and assessments is an increase in confidence. Um, Even students will say, I feel so much more confident after I performed. And I think, and this I'm talking to myself when I say this, the impact of feeling confident is just, I mean, it goes beyond like, do you show up? It goes beyond how are you performing on an assessment for students and parents to both say that their students feel more empowered is, I mean, we're meeting the metric. We're certainly meeting that metric.
1: That's good, man. That's good, that's good, that's good. I wanna ask you two about books again, (laughs) coming back to books. Um, There is pushback, as you identified when we spoke earlier, pushback about teaching uh, true history in the schools. Um, On both sides, though, uh, there are allies who want to know more. Um, Some of them are, as you've indicated, opposed and afraid of what teaching history and policy would mean for Students, etc. Are there some go-to books that those who are interested in the discussion on critical race theory should read? I, I would say, your what are your go-to books for those who want to have a better discussions on the issue and be more mm-hmm. objective?
0: Brian, you need to open up a king word. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, culturally responsive teaching and the brain by Zaretta Hammond is. Number one, um, one of my close friends, Dr. Carissa mccray actually just published her first book, um, and it is titled. Give me a second. I'll tell you right now. If I can find it. Anyway, oh, it's called Equitable Instruction: Empowered Students, and she just published that. Um, then you have Teaching Black Girls in the Face of Resistance which is by Dr. Venus Evans. I think um, what else? There's so many. The last one was called I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. That one is really, really good. Um, I recommend Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Super good read. Um, but the first couple that I mentioned are four teachers in the classroom. Um, and I think The last couple were like out, you know, out of the classroom,
1: so. I appreciate that. And what I'll do, uh, Rihanna, is I'll put the books in the notes of the podcast as resources mentioned, et cetera. Great. So um, I'll be sure to include those. I really, really appreciate it. Um, Could we touch on briefly the differences between achievements and opportunity, Uh, Mm -hmm. achievement and opportunity gaps? which is also a focus of your study?
0: Yeah, yeah, so this is something that I recently learned, Ryan, the difference between achievement and opportunity gap. So we used to call it the achievement gap because it was solely based on student performance. And we were noticing that students in higher income areas, white students were performing significantly higher then students in low socioeconomic settings and black students. And we recently, and I, I say we, the education world, recently made the transition to the opportunity gap because we are tr- we are trying to incorporate and recognize the systems in place that lead to those differences and not just isolate academic, you know achievement. So we are looking at, the impact of discipline, the impact of resources, the impact of parents' level of education. And so that goes so deep. It goes as deep as a student not performing on an assessment uh, well because they were staying up all night and they stayed up all night because they had to watch a sibling. They had to watch a sibling because mom is working late mom is working late because she doesn't have adequate you know a higher level of education to flex her hours and it it just goes so much deeper than um how did they perform on a test and so I think that that is so impactful because we look at a whole we look at the whole story we look at the entire system at play and not just high achieving, low achieving, but what, what is impacting that? And so I really like that we made that transition from achievement to opportunity gap.
1: What is impacting, has that made its way to the professional development of educators in all schools now, or is it still something that's being, is that, is that being resisted by educators, the uh, achievement versus opportunity discussion?
0: You know, I don't think so. I think that most of our educators are extremely enlightened. And I think that we have always seen the impact, but we didn't quite know how to say it. You know, and now we just have the verbiage for it. I always give credit to educators. And I think that although they don't often have a seat at the table, especially when policy is in play, we know. You know, like we, we see how our babies show up to school and we know that it's more than, oh, they didn't perform well on the test. It's a given for us. Now we just have the verbiage to to say it, but I definitely don't see any pushback, no.
1: And somehow that needs to make its way into the criminal justice entities who punish those who fall you know, into the cracks. Because like you've indicated, what leads to higher achievement has a lot to do with forces beyond the control of many of our students, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is that is uh, very sobering, man. Um, yeah. So Rihanna, I'll say this, man, um, your mentor told you to stop playing it safe. There is someone listening or viewing who has a desire to be as impactful as you are, as your adoptive parents were as well, they want to do something to offset some of the sobering statistics you mentioned about black and brown children in the schools being overdisciplined, And wow. they're perhaps thinking, well, could I become a teacher? Uh, is, is education the role for me? Or, or, or perhaps there's more I can do in terms of uh, implementing policy. Um, so it, it's a twofold question. One is just, uh, generally speaking, for that individual who is playing it safe, what could you say to that person about um, moving beyond that that space where uh, playing it safe feels the most comfortable to them? And then I'll ask you later on to talk about ways people of color and our allies can become more involved in policy and effectuating change?
0: Mm -hmm. So I think, although that's a twofold question, it kind of go together. Uh, I always encourage everyone, even if you don't have a child in education, even if you're not a teacher or an administrator, that you go to your school board meetings. You attend your city council meetings. And not only do you attend those things, but you make your voice heard at those, at those situations. You also get involved in your local schools. Um, some people call them SAC, some people call them different things. Um, in your committees, because schools, they, they are reaching out and pulling for community involvement. Um, I encourage everyone to build a relationship with your local and even state level legislators write those letters, send those emails, make those phone calls, but before that, explore yourself and where you stand. Make sure where you stand and where where your heart is at is in the right place because a lot of times we can play the savior role and we don't need saviors. We need allies. We need people that care about the work. Um, I know in Jacksonville, there are a lot of workshops that are put on um, by a place here called JPEF, which is a think and do tank. Um, Get involved in any organization that's local to you that is impacting education. Um, We recently passed a mileage referendum um, to give increased teacher pay, increase the funding to arts and sports. And that was like such overwhelming community involvement. And I know a lot of people don't know where to start. So if there's someone in your community that is in education, reach out to them. That's how I found my mentor. I was searching, I sent her an email. I'm like, hey, I wanna know you and your work. And I've done that several times. One of my mentors is actually the chairman of the school board, Darrell Willie. Um, and I have no problem just saying, hey, I wanna know you and your work. And, and People care about that. We need as many people, as many good people in education as possible. (laughs) I don't wanna encourage, you know.
1: That's good, that's good. And I'll say finally this, uh, that person who is dealing with the weight of imposter syndrome, code switching, et cetera, um, you, you've clearly indicated Ooh. the importance of having mentors, mm-hmm. but there's somebody who's just met you for the first time via this podcast and this uh, YouTube, and they're looking for some encouragement because they're dealing with those issues as well. I'll ask you to say something finally to that person.
0: Yeah. To the person who's dealing with, um, feeling like they don't really belong. Or they're here by accident. Kind, for a moment, I would hide my insecurity behind humility. I will always say, well, I'm just staying humble. I'm just staying humble. And it really was insecurity. It really was, oh, I don't feel like I belong here. And so that took just a lot of deep diving personally. It also looks practical. Um, like me stop saying I have imposter syndrome and stop when I get off an interview or a podcast, I'm like, oh, did I mess up? Did I, it kind of looks like cut it, like stop it where it is. Um, it also looks like affirmations on my mirror (laughs) and in my car and on my phone, um, and understanding that you're nowhere by accident. And I think if any story tells that, it's definitely mine because we talked earlier, I could be anywhere doing anything. And so let your story kind of empower you as well. Um, And look at your current circumstances and, and run with it. And really, I mean, I've seen a lot of people get stuff that weren't, they didn't really earn it, but they were confident. And they're, you know, somebody who's confident, like being confident is just half the battle. So if I just act confident enough, at some point, I'm gonna start really, we're gonna start really believing it about ourselves, <laughs> for sure.
1: Awesome, awesome, powerful. Thank you so much, uh, Rihanna Seister, St. Petersburg native, a student data and evaluation manager, um, working on master's degree in public policy, uh, transparent, <laughs> shared a lot. Thank you so much. Please, Rihanna, please let us know uh, if if you're available for speaking engagements or whether you're comfortable with just having people connect with your journey. Please share all your handles with us.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm totally open. I love love to talk, if you can't tell. Um, (laughs) um, LinkedIn is first and last name, Rihanna Seister. Facebook is Rihanna Seister. Um, Instagram is at r underscore s s c y s t e r. Um, And that's pretty much where I am. And I'm always open. I'm super available.
1: Super, super, super available. So thank you so much, Rihanna, for joining us on the Water Word podcast. Blessings to you on your journey and um, continue to blaze a trail. We're so proud of you. And thank you for all that you do. And thank you again for joining us on the Waterwork podcast. Thanks. Most welcome, most welcome.